Today is our final sermon in the sermon series, Questions Christians Ask. The rest of these sermons can be found on our podcast or our YouTube station, and I would encourage you to go back and also watch the videos that our clergy team members have each prepared to go with each of these questions. They are excellent. And um, many of our small groups have participated in watching them, but anybody can go and share those. Today, we will be looking at a passage from the Gospel according to Luke, where a very well-educated religious leader comes to Jesus and asks not one question, but two. And Jesus' answer reminds us that there's more to this Christianity business than simply knowing the right answer. Listen for the good news from Luke chapter 10. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and took off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine, then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will pay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy Jesus said, go and do likewise. May God bless this reading to our understanding. Simone Veil was born in Paris to a well-to-do family. Simone's parents were culturally Jewish, but as far as religion was concerned, they were agnostic. But as a young woman, Simone had several early mystical encounters Encounters that caused Simone to adopt what she called a Christian outlook on life. She became a philosopher and an activist. For example, when Hitler rose to power in Europe, she desperately wanted to join the resistance movement. It was dangerous because her family was culturally Jewish, and they packed up and they fled to England. And though they had significant resources, Simone limited herself to the rations that her fellow French citizens could get with their daily ration cards. You see, she was not born into a Christian household, but she practiced a Christian approach. 
And I love something that Simone said about Christianity. She said that in the church, which is a social organization, the mysteries inevitably degenerate into beliefs. The mysteries inevitably degenerate into beliefs. Today, we celebrate the 11 members of our pastor's class who have spent the last several months exploring the mysteries of the Christian faith. Some of them have made the decision today to immerse themselves into the way of life called Christian by being immersed in those waters of baptism, dying and rising with Christ, and committing themselves to following in this mysterious way behind this one named Jesus. For our youth today, this is not the ending. Baptism and Holy Week is not the ending of their journey. It is just the beginning. By the time these sixth graders or eighth graders, they will have new questions to ask about Christianity. By the time they finish college, they will been, have been exposed to more complex worldviews in their college classrooms hearing various philosophies, making friends with people from a variety of countries and a variety of worldviews and a variety of religions. And all of this will surely challenge them to re-examine what it means to call themselves Christian. Today, then, we celebrate that they have begun a journey of faith that is their own, not the one that they were given to us when they were dedicated as infants, when they came to kindergarten here, but one that they claim as their own. And we as a congregation have just pledged to walk alongside them in that journey of faith and encourage them to explore the mysteries. Today is not about our young people checking a box that says they have found all the right answers, that they have mastered all the right beliefs. None of us have done that. Best-selling Christian author Brian McLaren recently wrote a book called Do I Stay Christian? He examines all the reasons why modern folk have considered leaving Christianity as well as the reasons why modern folk have chosen to stay Christian. He said that sometimes folks leave the Christian tradition because they see that the Christian tradition is stuck in toxic beliefs toxic theology, he calls it, and he compares Christianity to a ship. This is what he says. I sometimes see Christianity as a huge ship capable of amazing voyages. It has tall mast, wide sails, a strong hull, a deep keel, and a powerful rudder, but it is not going anywhere because its anchor is so heavy that the crew can't pull it up. He says, by reducing its mysteries to beliefs, by codifying those beliefs into systems, and by defining itself by those belief systems, it has rendered itself a paradox, a ship that floats but doesn't sail. And he reminds us that for the earliest Christians, those who followed Jesus in the first century, Christianity was not a set of beliefs, it was a way of life. And Christians had a variety of beliefs that they held. In today's scripture lesson, we see that very complex conversation unfolding even in the time of Jesus. 
Jesus is engaged in a dialogue with a scholarly expert who has studied the scriptures his whole life, and they are talking about what is it that is the essence of this faith. The scholar of scripture says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, what do the scriptures say? And the scholar replies, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got this. But then the scholar probes more deeply into the mystery and asks, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story, and you know this story. There's this man left in the ditch, stripped of his clothes on the side of the road. He's been robbed and beaten and left for dead. And a priest comes by and sees and passes by. And a Levite comes by and sees and passes by. And a Samaritan comes by and sees and is moved with compassion, and he stops. The Samaritan bandages the wounds, pours oil and wine upon the skin, puts the wounded one on his own animal, brings him to an inn, takes care of him, pays the bill, and says, I'll be back to pay for whatever more is needed. And then the tables turn, and Jesus becomes the one asking the questions. Jesus says to the scholar of Scripture, here's the real quiz. Who proved neighbor? Well, hmm. Um, it's the one who showed compassion. You see, the scholar can't even say the word. He can't say Samaritan because to say the good Samaritan was an oxymoron. It couldn't be even imagined. Samaritans were foreigners, not neighbors. Samaritans believed all the wrong stuff about religion. For generations, Samaritans had been cultural outcasts. Samaritans were enemies, not neighbors. What is the word that you and I could not say? What word like Samaritan would stick like peanut butter in the back of your throat? Could you say it's the good member of the Taliban? Could you say it's the good proud boy? Could you say it's the good member of Putin's inner circle? Whatever gets a visceral response from you, that is what Jesus evoked in this conversation. Can you imagine that this one that you have despised and rejected is the very one who comes and pulls you up out of the ditch and carries you to safety and pays your bills because that one was moved with compassion to take care of you? By telling this story, Jesus reminds us that in order to inherit eternal life, we must do far more than check boxes called belief. We must practice a radical form of love. We must practice a deep compassion. We must break all the cultural norms and boundaries that keep us alienated from our fellow members of the human race. Father James Wallace tells this story. It's a true story about a 12-year-old boy named Ahmed. He was a Palestinian living in Jenin on the West Bank. He was out playing not far from his home, playing in the streets, and he happened to have with him a toy gun. And a street fight broke out 
a real street fight between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and Ahmed was shot, and his parents rushed him to the nearest hospital, which happened to be an Israeli hospital. And for two days he lived, but finally his parents made that gut-wrenching decision to unplug him from life support, but before they unplugged him, his mother and father made the decision to donate his organs that others might live. Six others lived with Ahmed's kidneys, his lung, his heart, including a two-month-old baby, all of them Israelis. Ahmed's mother practiced the compassion of the Good Samaritan when she said, my son has died, but he can give life to others. What a mystery is that? Where does that kind of radical love come from? How do we walk with courage and compassion like those Nashville police officers Rex Engelbert and Michael Colazzo, who entered a school where bullets were flying from the upstairs window at 1025 and on the video you can hear their voices shaking as those officers encourage one another, go, and in 90 seconds they had entered the room with the shooter who was threatening more fire, and they stopped the violence by risking their own lives. That is such a mystery, such valor, such selfless love. In a few moments, we will sing our closing hymn, I Want to Be a Christian. It's a spiritual. It was composed in 1750 by slaves in Virginia. Can you imagine them composing it, not with pen and paper, but with voices, maybe with drums, homemade, gathered in dilapidated quarters, often treated like animals and ripped apart from their wives and their sons, living generation after generation, trapped in slavery, but by some mystery, they summoned the courage to sing a song where they longed to live with the compassion and the love of Jesus. The hymn first appeared in any printed form in 1907 and in our hymn books in 1950s, but for 200 years it had already been a call for liberation from the most inhumane treatment, a melodic cry to live with the love and the compassion of Jesus. In recent years, many leading New Testament scholars, including our own Dr. Mike Graves, have proposed that we turn a little bit this familiar story of the Good Samaritan and think of it a bit differently. Instead of simply seeking to be kind, which is a great thing, instead of simply seeking to emulate the goodness of the Samaritan's compassion and kindness and generosity and love, what, they ask, what if we focused on that person in the ditch, the one stuck? What if the story is more about Jesus than it is about us? You see, Jesus tells us this story in the Gospel of Luke just after Jesus has turned and set his face toward Jerusalem. This is the final week of his life. He knows that he is going to the place where he will meet the crucifixion. This is his final chapter, and Jesus then tells them a story 
about a man who fell among thieves, who was robbed, who was stripped naked and abandoned on the side of the road. And Jesus tells that story as he himself turns to go to Jerusalem where he will be stripped naked, fall among thieves, be beaten, and left abandoned on the side of the road. What if Jesus is inviting you and me to see the pain of the world by seeing the pain of Jesus? What if Jesus is the one in the ditch? What if God's own beloved child is beaten and lying in a ditch? The Samaritan takes the beaten man to an inn where he is nursed back to life, and the only other time we hear the word inn in Luke's entire story is in the Christmas story when Mary and Joseph seek refuge in an inn to give birth to Jesus. On this Palm Sunday, we remember that Jesus had compassion for us, that Jesus did not let suffering stop him from loving us, that he landed in the ditch, that he knew completely and fully the anguish of ours and of this world of ours. And so in response to that great, mysterious love, how will we live?